0: So, I talked to a colleague of mine a long time ago and he said that he never wrote any tests because he didn't need any, because he didn't write any bugs. Have you ever encountered bug-free code?
1: Was this an actual colleague and did he actually exist or is he, is he a straw man?
0: He, is, he wasn't really my colleague. I was brought in as a consultant to have a look through his code and see if it was of good quality. And it was, but it didn't have any tests. So, so who knows? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you find any bugs? Uh, not when I did my... There's a very good word for this. Read through of the code. Mm. Uh, but I think everything crashed just a few days afterwards. So <laughs> I, I wasn't very good at my yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe
1: he didn't write bugs.
0: Yeah, it could have been space radiation. Uh, so how do you... Do you write tests?
1: Uh, sometimes, on occasion. Uh, I would say I I write a fair bit of... A fair number of tests, but I don't really write tests uh, religiously. So, uh, on the first question <laughs> you posed uh, at the beginning, there, uh, no, I don't believe in bug-free code. I don't believe most people are very good at writing things that way, and I think it. I think it's possible to keep bugs very, very like the bug count very very low obviously people can do it like uh, some of the space mission stuff is is definitely heavily scrutinized and reviewed and worked through and tested um, to make sure it's essentially bug free code
0: yeah it usually is except for when it isn't
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but things sneak through there as well and I think beyond that for for my typical purposes, like web systems and stuff, I mean, you're you're building on uh, on top of fairly uh, fairly elastic uh, stuff. Where it's like building a hyper reliable system is generally not in in my client's best interest uh, because there are costs associated with building in that way. And the costs are generally (laughs) uh, development time and as such money. Um, Yep. But tests can also save money when they prevent uh, when they either prevent very expensive mistakes or when they prevent uh, a lot of recurring sort of mistakes where where you keep having to fix something because it's tricky to get it right and it's uh, it's easy to accidentally break and if you have a test that tells someone you accidentally broke this thing uh, I think that's where tests usually pay off but sometimes I write tests for like as part of the design process and I guess that's when I approach TDD but I don't do that consistently do you do testing do you write tests
0: I write tests Generally, I try to test all code paths because...
1: 100% coverage, eh?
0: Yeah. uh, I usually never reach it, but I try to because I... (laughs) This is one of those... You know Mm. how processes and behaviors can be a result of all the traumas or at least experiences, so... I did a lot of Haskell for a couple of years and didn't program much in any other language. Uh,
1: That was very traumatic. So now you write tests. No, No,
0: only the the other way around. (laughs) Um, So I wonder why I started talking about traumas. Well, uh, that's another. We'll get back to traumas. Okay, I promise. But Haskell was like, I could model so many things in the type system. And then when I left the Haskell world and dove into the Python world instead, or the snake pit, as we call it, we don't, but yeah, um, then the guardrails were gone.
1: Snakes don't need guardrails. I
0: didn't have any types. They don't. They, well, I don't know. Maybe they appreciate I don't know
1: what a Haskell is, though. So the comparison sort of becomes irrelevant. <laughs>
0: Are you stomping around on my metaphors? <laughs> it's a tad bit, maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, no guardrails. So when I started doing Python, and especially when I again, and especially when I started doing Python in a professional professional context on a code base where lots of people worked, it tests became much more important because I didn't have the guardrails anymore. I had to write tests for the things that the type system helped me with in Haskell. Okay.
1: What does that look like when you write tests for for that? What kind of tests are those? Is it uh, check that this is always an
0: integer? Mm, sometimes, yes. There's a... But that's more... It depends a bit on the application. If the application is allowed to crash, like it's a CLI application, and the part of the application I'm working on is primarily for the developers to use or see or stuff like that, then uh, I can put assert statements everywhere. So assert that this function gets an integer and a string and a date time, and that that date time is time zone aware and so on Mm. Um, and that I can model with the type system in Haskell Um, so that's one of the kind of things and also or just throw interesting inputs at the functions and see what happens uh, in a more normal um, test suite
1: yeah and I guess some of Some of that sort of testing where you pass it something bad and make sure it crashes correctly might not actually be necessary at all in a language like Haskell. I I haven't worked with Haskell at all, but I have worked with Elm, and I think it provides uh, very similar compile time guarantees. Yeah. Where... (laughs) Where it's like no 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 you have something here is very un- very loose it's a little bit undefined we don't know what you're trying to do here and as such we will not allow it uh, you will have to define your behavior a little bit closer by either uh, doing something neat with the types or or uh, fixing your stuff <laughs> good stuff in another way so I can I can definitely see how entire classes of tests just go away yep i don't know that i write that many tests of that kind some certainly some where where it's like okay i want to make sure that this produces the correct like success result and the correct failure result but usually the failure result it's. I mean, it's part of the API. Uh, it's it's part of the contract. So, you act. For example, if you're if you're talking to some functions that talk to a remote service, uh, the failure. There are failures that are normal. <laughs> like yeah, you get a bad response for some reason, or the service is down, or whatever.
0: Yeah, and that we need to be able to handle. Yeah. And how should we handle it? And writing a test for that is a good way to preserve the behavior or to document the behavior uh, for the future.
1: Yeah, something I've increasingly been doing, I think, is considering the test's uh, reliable documentation on how to call things. Yep. Because uh, documentation like uh, comments and stuff can be become outdated and sometimes like i try to name things clearly and try to uh, ensure that the variable names and stuff are is clear but if you're diving into the code um uh, you might not have all the context you need to know what what it means to pass a config to this thing and it's like okay uh so, Who knows what the config is? Like, okay, look at the tests, that's a config because you'll have to have everything needed to call the function in the tests. Yes. And this is where things like mocking can become very, very tricky and sometimes dangerous.
0: I have such a love-hate relationship to mocking. Yeah. It's, yeah, because it's so easy to just go, I mock away all the bad things. And now my test pass. Good. And then I haven't tested anything.
1: <laughs> I have tested that calling functions works. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's like oh, calling your functions. No, 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 no. Function invocation works. <laughs> it's like yes. The, the language still still runs. That's that's a good test to have. Um, maybe maybe not the most necessary test to have.
0: Nah, I think that. One could delete such tests.
1: So, but you said you were aiming to cover all
0: code paths? Yep. Because I want to see how things fail and how things succeed.
1: How do you typically go about that? Because that to me does sound like mostly unit testing, but I could be wrong.
0: Yeah, it's unit testing. Um... I think if, well, it depends. In Haskell, I use QuickCheck and just generate all the possible inputs for small values of all. Um, but I haven't really looked into uh, the library in Python that does the same thing. Hypothesis, it's called. It's a very good name. Um, so right now I'm using PyTest and the parametrize uh, part of it which lets me write the test and parameterize some uh, of the argument okay yeah that's interesting
1: i haven't done much with sort of property-based testing and generating tests and stuff uh, there's a lot of people around the elixir community that are into that and do things with that but i i just haven't dove in and i'm i'm very very focused on bang for a buck with my tests and if i spend too much time on, on writing tests I, I get cranky yep i i think what i tend to do is if some code is making me nervous then i will <laughs> add tests <laughs> uh, and regardless if it's mine or other people's it's like if there are so if there are very nuanced behaviors for example that i I feel like this would be easy to break. Um, Then I will usually add tests to ensure that that behavior remains. Yep. If it's important, and I tend to cover sort of, yeah, contracts and APIs that I think are are important and will be like will regularly be called by others. I don't necessarily, so so in Elixir and the Phoenix web framework, you write controllers for for rendering web pages and you write live views for doing more real-timey web pages and uh, you can write resources or resource controllers for REST endpoints and stuff. So these controllers typically take your input and produce JSON or HTML or whatever. Yep, And you can absolutely write tests for them and there's a lot of decent tooling for doing that. This is typically not what I would be using tests for. It's like making sure that a web page renders or making sure that a REST endpoint returns JSON is usually not what I would use tests for. Usually I would write tests for Uh, for the rather for the core logic or whatever's inside those wrappers because those wrappers are are usually quite reliable yeah or the the, the ways in which they fail is probably sort of irrelevant to your particular controller unless you made a very complicated controller in which case maybe you should test it
0: yes is Elixir, is the tradition in Elixir to, uh, or Phoenix uh, to, put, to have uh, as much stuff as possible in the controller or does it go somewhere else?
1: Typically, no. I would say that the recommendations from the, from the sort of Phoenix web framework side is to break it out into what they call a context, which is a domain-driven design idea.
0: Huh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so the general idea <laughs> I, I've been talking about context a fair bit recently.
0: Um,
1: there, may, there may even be recordings of it. Wow. Um, so a context is typically a way of gathering and like collecting related functionality mm-hmm. and separating it from things like your web api so for example if you're you have a system that can create blog posts the create post function doesn't really have anything to do with rendering json at the api boundary
0: hopefully not
1: maybe you even want to have the option of calling it from a few different places like maybe there's an api maybe there's some buttons people can click in a web ui maybe there's a maybe there's a cli that uses the same code base and the idea here is that the the context could serve all of these with the same create post function okay while the controller would be in the web part uh, and there would be a difference between the the API controller and the web UI controller and maybe the CLI would be a mixed task or whatever. There are... so Like I've seen good... I've had some good results with it as far as... So I I made a note-taking app or web app. Yeah. And that one takes uh, input from Telegram. Yes. And... Uh, essentially I look at the message that comes in via this Telegram bot and if it isn't a specific type of command, I just treat it like a note and want to, and assume I want to ingest this note into my, into my collection. And then I call like the notes module and that has ingest note as a, as a thing, as a function. And I use the same ingest note function if I just go to the web application and type something into the note field and save. Ah. Yeah. And neither of these, or rather, that that notes module is a context in that in that parlance. Okay. And if you want to keep it more simple, it's just the module. I mean, it's not. It doesn't have anything special, there's no glue, there's no nothing. this It's just the system designs uh, termino- piece of terminology. It's about structuring your software. It's not a It's not that it does anything in particular while. A lot of things around the web framework, things like schemas and controllers, those also come with functionality. <laughs> It's like, yeah, okay, there's some macros that give you helper functions and this hooks into that and this hooks into that. But these context modules are just, they're, they're just straight up code. There's nothing particular about them aside from being part of a pattern.
0: Okay, so everyone is uh, agreeing on let's call these modules contexts and we know what they are now uh,
1: for for particular values of everyone <laughs> and agree.
0: Yeah, because um, uh, so yeah.
1: if you listen to the Elixir Outlaws uh, very recent episode, uh, so that's the podcast. Um, they they touched on the context <laughs> towards the end of the episode where Chris Keithley more or less said, uh, "Oh yeah, context are not a thing."
0: Yeah, because he had been thinking on them or about yeah. them.
1: Yeah, and that means
0: that means they are not a thing. Interesting. I think he's correct, but they might be useful even though they don't exist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like I, I somewhat agree with him. I think he has some some good ideas about that. And I I get the feeling that he has some very mixed views on testing <laughs> and tests as well. And what tests are useful and what aren't. Yeah. The thing is, I've worked in code bases where where there's been a lot of unit tests that are very, very particular, very, very focused and very, very detailed. And there's a lot, of, lot to maintain if you have a lot of tests. Yep. There's a big test suite that also means potentially a lot of breakages when you make changes
0: yeah and that's either a good thing or a bad thing depending on we yeah. have lots of stuff
1: but but having a lot of tests can slow you down it can also but having the right amount of tests can actually make you somewhat faster because or make you significantly faster just because you have a certain degree of confidence in while developing and you will discover issues without needing sort of long qa cycles and
0: and such. Yeah. I use because I'm a quite neurotic person, neurotic. I don't know how to pronounce English as usual. So to get something done at all when I come to a new code base, I assume that the correct tests exist. Oh, the correct ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I start changing things and I hope and if all tests pass including my own new ones, I'm happy. Uh, So this leads to me breaking stuff (laughs) quite often. (laughs) Um, So I I see myself as a chaos monkey in the best of ways. I try to be a very reasonable and nice chaos monkey. Yeah, but I also break them. Uh, so, so you sort of work from
1: the assumption that there are tests that should uh, should detect the consequences of your changes uh, or react like, to any bad consequences. And if those tests don't exist, hopefully you catch that while while evaluating your new solution. Yep. Uh, and then you want to cover that in tests because that's how you
0: work. Yep. So I assume that there are tests and... If there are none, that's bad, of course. Uh, But I write new ones. And I also assume that the ones who are doing the code reviews catch errors, uh, which I know you say that they won't. uh, And uh, I'm starting to agree with that, sadly enough. (laughs) Um, And the third one is that I also assume that there's proper monitoring of the system in production which there scarily often isn't so i don't know
1: <laughs> that's a lot of assumptions you got there <laughs> terrible yeah, shame if anything and, would invalidate them
0: <laughs> yeah and they are usually invalidated all the time and i fall, fall through my net of assumptions and hit the spikes at the bottom of uh, the floor, the
1: pit, of, the pit of spiky assumptions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Programming is like Prince of Persia, right? You
1: can rewind time.
0: Yeah, and you can also double jump, and if you fail, you die horribly.
1: I don't think you can double jump in Prince
0: of Persia. Huh? Wall jump? Uh, yes,
1: at least in the modern ones.
0: Cool. That's <laughs> at least something. <laughs> Well, that metaphor just... Or joke or weirdness just fell through. Like I do when I program and make stupid assumptions. Um, But it leads us into the question... Do you test in production?
1: Do you mean do I run tests against production? Or do you mean do I monitor production for failures? Or do you mean I push stuff into production and see if it fails as a test.
0: (laughs) Number two and three.
1: (laughs) All right. So I've definitely worked with systems that had a fair chunk of monitoring, and that was a good way of catching, especially performance regressions. Oh, nice. So that's that's one way where uh, it's not actually possible in many cases People are like, yeah, but you should profile and you should measure. It's like, but you can't measure as, uh, like, you can't measure the context of production properly. Indeed. There are things where, like, if you're building something and it needs to handle a certain amount of, for example, concurrent uh, requests or whatever, you can test for that. You can profile for that and you can, like, stress test it. But reproducing production requires uh, generally requires a lot more effort than you imagine, and it's usually not worthwhile, in my
0: experience. I think that depends on how much your client is paying you (laughs) to make it not crash in production. Yeah, sure. Uh, Because I've heard stories when uh, Ericsson paid um, an acquaintance of mine, a teacher of mine, actually. Uh, to make sure that their uh, switches and so on stopped crashing in production it didn't it wasn't too important because they ran Erlang but it was still uh, <laughs> they wanted it to stop crashing so there's probably a talk or something about this maybe I'll find interesting yep
1: yeah so production monitoring super useful for catching things that are genuinely very hard to catch in development and uh, usually uh, entirely uncatchable in staging as well because staging doesn't usually have interesting traffic. Indeed. And, for example, staging usually doesn't have the performance of production. So even if you did something where you mirrored the traffic, (laughs) staging would just fall over. Yeah. So typically, uh, you can't really you can't test performance to, to, like you can't test it fully, let's say. That's true. In, for production. So to some extent, monitoring is, and uh, observability is very important for catching performance regressions. Uh, I've definitely, like for my own projects, uh, my website, beambloggers.com, uh, that sort of thing, I mean, I'll just shove it at production when I feel like it. I wrote something that should work and see what happens. Because I it does not matter if it has an outage that spans minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Or even if I push it out and then realize that I broke something, it's like, okay, a thing I care about was down for an hour or two. Yeah. Doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. For clients... Uh, I try not to test by pushing things to production. It also depends on what kind of infrastructure the client has. So I've worked with clients where where they had some level of um, blue-green deploys and it could detect a certain error rate and then it would roll back uh, to the previous version and that sort of thing. Cool, and I mean that can catch some types of some of mistakes, but i wouldn't I wouldn't generally bank on it. It's not what i
0: <laughs> I don't set out to test in production so you never tried if it actually worked
1: uh no i've seen it I've seen those setups work because of unintentional errors sent to production
0: <laughs> oh okay, that's fair
1: enough <laughs> mine and others but yeah, so one type of testing I've done in production is where, where you can't actually reproduce the issue locally. And the best thing you can hope for is that you're running on a system that makes it easy enough to, for example, try to invoke a certain request or function call on the production environment. Yeah, Because there are function calls that are perfectly safe to run in a production environment. And that the production environment actually runs on a regular basis, but sometimes they fail, and maybe they don't output enough uh, error information to the logs or to the monitoring. Yep. But if you actually ran it and stared at it, you would see what's going on, or you would find out. Uh, especially with Elixir, this is very doable. You jump on to the server, you attach a console. And then you run whatever it is you need to run. That's so cool. Uh, Yeah, it's quite neat. Um, So I've definitely done that. And I guess that's a type of testing in production, but it's more sort of investigating investigating
0: problems. Yeah, it's more after the fact.
1: What's your thinking about testing in production? You asked,
0: so I imagine you have a thought. Well, I... Would love to have. Um, okay, let's start it like this. Uh, for me, I don't really care when I do things, uh, my own stuff. But uh, Django is very good and sends me email when things go boom. Uh, so that's. It's slightly embarrassing because other people are using my stuff uh, and they get a server error page. But. Uh, I fix it ASAP and then if it's really, I'm really lucky, I get an email address for the user who was logged in so I can email them and say, "Hi, try again. <laughs> fixed it now. Yeah. Um, so that's a very low key approach. If we want to
1: talk site reliability engineering, I, I imagine that's perfectly in line with your SLA and SLOs oh, and yeah. uh, whatever... Whatever else.
0: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't signed an SLA with these people, so it's very good. The um, service
1: level agreement is, I'm going to make my darndest. I'm going to do my darndest.
0: Yes, when I have nothing more important to do, like work or sleep, or playing very fun computer <laughs> games, I will fix bugs if I only have fun computer games to play, though.
1: That's the SLA.
0: Right there. at work I would love to have a green blue deploy or something that fixes things automatically right now I think we have some of the more senior people who go why are things going boom right now and then they downgrade (laughs) to an earlier version of the pod Mm. Uh, and then they start finding out what's wrong so I think. hmm, Also, I would love to have uh, the performance regression stuff, uh, right there, and also. Maybe that's available as a package for or or an app for Django, to have something that uh, starts mailing when there are, uh, order of n bugs. Uh, because the ORM in Django is. V- it's very good in generating those bugs.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the way the way we kept track of things and that was that was a python system, but it was um so we were relying on uh slightly lower level integrations. We were using New Relic, which is a, a very useful product, but also incredibly pricey. Yep. I wouldn't use it today mostly because of price. But they have, like you install an agent and you instrument your application with a bit of their library code and they hook into, so PsychoPG2, for example. Yep. Uh, so that they can pull um, query performance information. Nice. And they have the, a- if you run the agent for for the host, so they have will keep an eye on CPU usage, RAM, disk, that sort of thing. And then you can set uh, yep. alerts for different criteria, and you can also just jump into their their dashboard, and it's like, yeah, we released the thing. Oh dear, response times are in the toilet. Uh, let's let's maybe <laughs> see if what we did there. Um, yep. So that's typically what I mean with with monitoring. Um,
0: yep. Yeah, I think. I have the same uh, interpretation of the word.
1: And it's it's incredibly useful. And for anything where where I'm supposed to be responsible for for it staying up and performant and it's important, I would want something to that effect. Typically, I think I would look at Datadog today because that's what I'm hearing the most uh, good noise about. Nice. It seems to have... R- Reasonable-ish pricing and um uh definitely a good useful UI. There's also stuff with with so Prometheus and Grafana and things.
0: Yeah, they seem cool. I have never used them though. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I might actually be doing a thing with live stream sometime soon with a guy who so Alex Kutmus, uh who wrote which is an elixir library for for producing metrics for uh, Prometheus and Grafana. And cool. uh, yeah, he's made a very ambitious library. It, it gives you dashboards by default as well. So you don't have to sort of set up all the views you need. Um, so you get a bunch of bet- metrics about how the beam runs and how, uh, so how did, if you choose to use the, the Ecto database plugin, you will get that kind of information, and yeah, a bunch
0: of cool stuff. Sounds really nice. We'll have to talk more about that later. Yeah.
1: So that's uh, might actually be doing a live stream about that. Nice. But but yeah, test testing was the idea. Yeah, testing. so uh, testing in production. Another aspect of sort of t- testing in production is to have. I like to call it an agent. It's sort of uh, less chaos and more monkey, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but but just having something that is a very high level sort of integration test that makes sure that your stuff is up, yep. um, and maybe carries out some automated operations to make sure that it's roughly doing what it's expected to do.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm helping a client right now with building out a regression test suite, automated regression testing uh, with a browser-based testing tool, so a Chrome driver thing. Nice. Where it will actually log into the platform, carry out the most important central operations uh, that this system uh, is built to do, and make sure that mm, there are no snags along the way of... Uh, performing that most valued operation yeah and that test suite will partially be very good to run in ci so whenever there's um there are code changes before they go on to the development environment like the central development environment they might as well be checked out to see that That they work, or at least they go out on the onto that environment, and then we we actually test that they work, and then we shout at the person who deployed it if it doesn't. Yep. And then the same it can do the same for staging, and then it can do the same to block a release from production, ideally, if it if it would fail, or at least detect if there was something that failed uh, due to this release. But then it could also run. Let's say every hour or every five minutes, depending on what kind of test it is, these tests end up fairly heavy because there's some processing involved where where it just waits around for a minute or so. So in that case, I would probably say, let's run it every hour or so. Yeah, And as long as it doesn't cause too much sort of performance drain or anything, it's pretty nice to know that the central parts of your application will... Will be checked every hour to make sure that they are still up. It doesn't cover the entire system in perfectly uh, nuanced uh, microscopic tests that will like check every inch of your CSS, but rather high bang for buck. Like, okay, what does what is this system supposed to be doing? Can it can it achieve its uh, its basic uh purpose in life yeah explode of course (laughs) yeah now but i i think that kind of setting up a sort of automated test of that kind is very useful especially since it can also catch a type of error that is very very tricky to find in development and that is usually uh, usually a production specific thing where Maybe you have an occasional timeout with some API call that only happens when the browser-based client is making a particular sequence of calls that just end up sort of uh, resource-choking something and something times out and boom. Yeah. And if that fails occasionally, there is a fair chance that you will never see enough of it that it gets looked at. While if your automated agent hits it once a day or every two days or something, odds are you will get annoyed and look at it.
0: Yeah. And it's, well, it's probable that those API calls are mocked anyway. So it's never found in dev.
1: Yeah, and I also know that it varies a lot if people actually test frontends. Yeah. Do you write tests for frontend
0: code? Uh yes and no. Uh I haven't been doing frontend for a while now. And usually I should really be it's <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the hard ones it depends Um, but when I wrote a front-end app uh, it was for managing voting and no not voting it was for managing speaker lists on uh, meetings Uh, that was a whole app uh, single page app written in pure script and it has both back-end and uh, front-end tests Uh, It's still buggy as I don't know what, but it has (laughs) tests. Uh, I think most of the crashes, though, is because of deployment issues. Um, So uh, that's a case where I wrote tests. A case where I really should have written tests is uh, when I did Django development. And in Django, you can put logic in your templates... And that logic really should be tested. And I never did that. So sometimes weird things happen. Yeah. So, yeah. And the coverage tool doesn't show that the templates are <laughs> don't have any coverage at all.
1: That's also an interesting thing. So I try and I don't really look at coverage. Uh, I... I don't come from a sort of test oriented or test heavy culture. Uh that's that's not what I started out with. I started out with PHP and CMS development essentially. YOLO dev. Yeah. Uh talk about in production, testing in production. Ha! We develop in production.
0: Yeah, I did that too for a while. It, yeah. It's,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> But yes, there there wasn't much testing there. So things like the actual CMSs, they usually have tests, uh, a fair few, a fair number of them uh, for the CMS code, but the code you build for the CMS, no, we didn't typically write tests for it. Um, And then when I transitioned into Python, it's like, yeah, I'm sure there are there's facilities for testing my Django apps, but I spend most of my time building things with them. And yeah. Even when we were building sort of a Python based microservice architecture, what I tended to do there was write tests for for the external contracts. So and I think that makes sense mostly for microservices. So Yep. Um Make sure they are doing what they're supposed to be doing (laughs) Um, and exposing what they're supposed to be exposing. But yeah, uh, yeah. and if there's something tricky going on internally, sure, you can write tests for that. But I don't really care for unit tests and coverage just for its own sake, because there's sometimes there's plumbing code that is entirely uninteresting and. Doesn't really like if it worked when you you put it together. Uh, it works. Or for example, I won't be writing tests for something that will crash the application if it's not set up correctly. Hmm. Usually, I won't write tests for that. Maybe I'll write an if statement that will output a better log message.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but I, I yeah I, I sort of prefer. If you don't, so I want to write tests that matter and I don't want to write tests that don't. That's good. Um, and I want to keep the, the amount of tests, tests that need to be maintained fairly, fairly lean. Yeah. So I, I tend to look for big bang for the buck testing or, and sort of tests where I know that like this should be a reliable interface so the tests will probably live for a long time and will be helpful for a long time yeah and sometimes building something and making sure it works and da 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 is feels more important to me than than actually making sure that it is is entirely right and maybe that the contracts will still shift around for a f- fair bit before they stabilize, and once they stabilize, it might be reasonable to put test to give them test coverage. But it, yeah, it, it very much depends. I I feel like I go by project by project in how I reason about testing. Um, nice. I'm I'm fairly I'm consistently inconsistent. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've heard rumors that you are a human. Hmm.
1: I don't like this rumor mongering. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm. I'm actually actually a pig.
0: Yeah, that's true. You just look like a human. Yeah. So you were talking about microservice architect architectures, and uh, this week I. Uh, made one of those go boom so because I removed a field in a dictionary and then I gripped for that field where I use rip grip, uh to see if there was anything that used it in this repository and it wasn't so everything was cool and it went through code review and everyone was like, yeah, good code, nice, ready to merge. Then I merged, pushed to production, and boom. <laughs> because there was another service that relied on this service having this field.
1: So the field was part of the public contract, whether whether that was clear or not.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a very unclear public contract. Um, it's... So I would have preferred to have a an integration test that went between the microservices. And this is one of the great things with having a monolith architecture is that I can grep in it much easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I could have changed everything at the first um, first time around. Now it took... I think it only took two times. Yeah,
1: yeah it, it gets weird with microservices when, when the contract is not very clear. Yeah. And that's something I think we actually did right with the microservice architecture that we set set up at one of my previous places. I've written a whole series on it, and we, we did a lot of things wrong, and we probably shouldn't have had microservices to begin with. <laughs> yeah. But we did define... All our contracts as protocol buffers.
0: Oh, nice.
1: Which meant that, like, they were well known. If you attempted to drop a field from it, you knew that you were, you were fiddling with the external contract, and uh, if uh, and you would have to check, like, if another service actually used that. Um, yeah. So that kind of clarity, I think, mm. is is pretty good. So I think that's also sort of what I prefer, if at all possible. Like putting the strictness and the constraints and the the checks at boundaries where I think it sort of makes sense. And so unit testing, for example, especially in like an OOP code base, it's like, oh, you wrote a class, you're going to unit test every inch of that, right? (laughs) <laughs> no, I will write a test that talks to the classes that other things should talk to. But this class only exists because I can't put code anywhere unless I have a class. Uh,
0: <laughs> but you're not a bitter or angry person. You're a bitter and angry pig. So it's cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah. and there are mod- tons of modules when you write um Elixir code as well, where I don't think like this module, like this module isn't something anyone else should be should necessarily be calling. It's not public. It's not documented as. Um, and then I won't cover it in tests if it's if it's uh, doing essentially internal stuff, because that should be changeable.
0: Yeah. Could you be writing an integration test that involved that module, so you saw that the overall behavior was okay?
1: Yeah. So wherever I find where, (laughs) like wherever I decide that the that the API (laughs) boundaries, or whatever, wherever I decide, like, no, this is the real module. This is the contract part. Uh, That's where I'll put my tests. Because if you decide that you are going to invoke this function on my rate limiter uh, supervisor worker child module, like, well, screw you! You should be calling something further out. <laughs> that that's not reasonable. That's not what it's there for.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm sure there are people that that will. That will think that like, or I know that there are people that are like, no, but you write the tests up front or no, but how can you be certain about the functionality unless you've written the tests? And it's like, yeah, but I've I've done software development for years entirely without tests. That has mostly worked. Then I've also tried to build some services with a lot of test coverage and they have mostly worked. I will say that there has not been a huge (laughs) difference in in the sort of reliability. When I'm doing something more advanced, or where I'm less certain of what I'm doing, then I tend to test more. Or if I know, like, okay, this this will touch stuff that is very sensitive, more tests. Like our user service, for example, in um, in that microservice architecture, that had much heavier testing than our sort of calendar integration service. Because if the calendar was a little bit broken, that wasn't all that bad, but the user service is sensitive, very sensitive. Yeah. And as a consequence, we wanted to be more certain that you didn't screw up sort of the security aspects of it when you change something or. Yeah. So I think, I think you need to consider like, okay, but what, what are you testing for? Why are you testing, uh, and make choices that make sense to you. It's, yeah. I think for me, testing is about achieving a certain level of confidence. And if you're going to be doing sort of automated deploys and stuff, I think you want a little bit more confidence that your tests will catch, has a decent chance of catching regressions. While if you're doing hand deployments in an early stage application, like, yeah, maybe you don't need that much testing. Or if certain parts of the code base are churning like crazy because you're in heavy development, maybe that doesn't need Testing because that will actually slow things down significantly. Yep. But I know that there are people that have like their entire methodology of software development is very test-driven, or uh, like, no, it's actually faster if you have tests. Yeah, maybe, and sometimes uh, it will vary. And I think I don't feel like there's any moral failing in in not writing uh, in not writing a lot of tests. But I think you should be aware that it's also a good practice to write some tests.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, two things about tests. One thing I learned from the Bike Shed podcast is that it's all right to remove tests. They can be deleted. They don't have to be there until the end of time. So I can, when I write something that I think is tricky. I can write a couple of tests to get and uh, to explore the design space using tests rather than the console or whatever other way I w- would like to use.
1: Yeah, that can be super useful.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then I can remove those tests or I can edit them and put them into a bigger integration test or just leave them be depending on my mood and the uh, lot of other stuff. Um so Based on careful engineering
1: principles, is what you mean, right? Yeah, meticulous logic.
0: Yes, you're much better with the words than I am. Uh, so, and the mood
1: other- slash meticulous logic. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and the other aspect of tests and testing and writing tests is that a test suite uh, is a very nice way to document a project. Uh, I think you said something about this earlier. Yeah,
1: I actually like doc tests a fair bit, just conceptually. uh, I have had some challenges just writing them because um, So if you're dealing with large data structures, for example, and I keep running into this with doc tests, (laughs) it gets very hard to write a nice, neat, self-explanatory test if it's all if you also need to validate a fairly large data structure
0: yep you need something that creates the data structure for you in a way that doesn't hide the important details so i think i've been using uh, factory boy for python uh, and it has been quite useful uh, for that kind of stuff
1: yeah so that I think factory stuff is good in um, in normal tests. So the way I've seen doc test used in Elixir uh, is typically as an explanation like this: These are some examples of how of usage. Oh, nice! But they can also be run as part of the test suite, so you know that if you broke your documentation, yeah. <laughs> and you actually test a few extra, or you test some very basic things uh, about your your implementation um you yep. yeah so i i find those super neat but sometimes they're they're inconvenient because just the way you need to show them to the user means that or yeah depending on what you're building uh it doc tests are, are sometimes not very feasible or they become very ugly um indeed uh uh-huh. And ugly documentation is not always helpful.
0: No, it's... Uh... <laughs> it's like ugly code.
1: But yeah, I, even normal tests, I think, is is good documentation. It took me a long while before I started looking at tests as, as a way of understanding code. But the longer I've gone with sort of... Yeah, the longer I've spent in any given ecosystem... I tend to, if there if the documentation is sparse for something, yeah, I tend to take that as a smell that like there's no guarantee that this documentation is actually lining up with, with the latest version. Yeah. So let's take a look at the tests and see how they actually use this thing. Yeah. And if there aren't tests and there aren't document there isn't documentation. Typically, the thing is not necessarily
0: ready for me to use. That's true. Uh, have you ever encountered golden tests? Um,
1: no, not that I'm aware of. They're usually monospaced and in whatever font my browser or code editor is in.
0: Yeah, Courier New, very nice. I am. Um... Ran upon them at a meetup for some years ago, and on the last assignment, where everything was. Let's see if I misrepresent this now, but if I do, it's yeah. uh, Send one hundred dollar bills to me and write your complaints on them. Um. So, golden tests are. um, You put what your expected output is in a file, and then you run everything with some input and compare it to the expected output. Very good. It's a good way to test compilers and so on. Uh, So I worked on something compiler-ish on the last project, and we had loads and loads and loads and loads of these files, and most of them were YAML or XML or JSON or any combination of those five formats. And one of the interesting properties of golden tests is that they are absolutely worthless as documentation <laughs> because you 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 get the... Uh, well, these two things didn't match. That's all there is to it. There's nothing like, and this is the part of the code that goes boom.
1: Yeah, it can't really trace it to... It's just
0: these two things don't match.
1: To, uh, line of code usually.
0: Yeah. And it's so frustrating.
1: <laughs> and in many many cases the straight comparison will be um it will be like a string comparison. Yep. And you might have things like, "Oh, but these fields in a map ended up in a different order."
0: <laughs> yeah. And then the question is, is that important? Yes or no?
1: Yeah, and in some cases it shouldn't be, but I know that it it c- certainly can be. Um, yep. I recently wrote some some of these types of tests because I needed to make an API endpoint that was used producing some dynamic output now, yep. um, format compatible with with what used to be just serving a file. Ah, cool. So I took. Some very advanced samples of uh, those files, and uh, um, a matching like uh, set up a data set that should match that yep, and then compare, essentially compare that file to to what my output was and i didn't I built some tooling to <laughs> I think the function was compare iteratively uh, <laughs> because I did not want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you're comparing Elixir data structures, you can actually get some pretty decent diffing uh, output on assertions and stuff.
0: Nice. Uh,
1: that's something that I think showed up in Elixir 1.10 and we're at 1.12 now or so. Um, but in this case it was it was a little bit more intricate than that. And I I didn't want like a dump of the entire data structure every time a comparison failed. So I iterated through it recursively and looked for for matches and failures and wrote some uh, fairly in-depth logic about just what the different comparisons could be and made them give me good error messages. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And that has been helpful, especially when I've broken things and I get a nice error message from the test saying, uh, you screwed up this part. Uh, we expect this to exist, and it doesn't. Um, but then we're parsing. So this was JSON. Yep. Then you have to parse the JSON and compare the data structures. You can't just compare the JSON. Or you, I guess you could, but then you're writing a JSON parser. Yeah. <laughs>
0: hmm. In uh, Python, there's an amazing module called difflib, which does this uh, for all kinds of text. And it can be configured to diff things in reasonable ways. Uh, it's not very good with tree structures, though, so then you're on your own again.
1: So it's pretty good until you actually need it for something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's useful for text. Yes, but. Perhaps even binary data, <laughs> but not structured data in that way.
1: Yeah. So I really like. I really like testing and I'm glad that I feel much more comfortable writing tests these days. Because it is an incredibly powerful tool. Oh, yes. Just automating, checking for problems and automating, like ensuring that what you wrote is doing what you said it was supposed to be doing. But I also, I have a hard time accepting sort of dogmatic Testing is uh, everything testing is life uh, i don't f- I don't really subscribe to to any particular ideology of testing and I guess that comes from from going off of feel in many cases so feel slash experience that that depends on how you want to sell it but I do go by feel when I decide whether I need to write a test or not I don't have a strong meticulous logic to to how i make that decision
0: that sounds reasonable it's yeah it doesn't generally
1: feel reasonable when you're you're talking to people that are very very convinced that they are following a logic i i don't it's hard to convince me that you that someone is as logical as they think they are nobody is I much more trust someone who's like, yeah, I I mostly go by feel, but I try to do it this way. It's like, yeah, that that makes sense to me. If someone's like, no, but this is trivial, Uh, you do X, Y, and Z, and you always do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, no, no, that's not how I operate at all. For me, programming is to a large extent a creative pursuit. Yeah, It's a craft, so there's an aspect of not just making it pretty or not just making it fun or not just making it uh, exciting <laughs> mm. but to a large extent there is also that like I try not to not to let too much of my sort of creative need my need to try new things bleed into client work because I don't I know enough to know that I should not be I should not be experimenting too much on something that doesn't need it. That's the craft part.
0: Yep. Make it just the right amount of boring.
1: Yeah. Finding out what's boring is the exciting part, I guess. It's like, oh, this technology was not boring. Let's uh, let's replace it, shall we? <laughs> keep getting yeah. woken up in the middle of the night by this thing uh apparently not boring enough <laughs> can we make it more boring yeah can we please <laughs> actually a recent a recent client uh part of my work was definitely making some code just much much more boring um some of that was fairly interesting and intricate work but it was it was code that was crashing due to a number of different reasons uh, entirely too often and most of it was most of the work was putting more controls on that code so that it didn't sort of have infinite uh, concurrency and uh, like it respected rate limits and that sort of thing huh. and that sort of imposing imposing control and Like it wasn't boring code to write, but I think the service got more boring because it's very reliable now, I think. It's much more reliable at the very least. (laughs) I'm quite
0: fond of reliable services, to be honest. Yeah,
1: there's good reason why people use sort of Nginx and Postgres and stuff. It's very rarely that those are the problems. Sometimes their default config can be a bit of an issue. Yes. But typically, the, they're very solid as services go.
0: And it's not too hard to create yeah. a config that's reasonable for yeah. the use case, this particular use case. Yeah,
1: and you can have some more exciting parts of your code where, where you're actually trying to solve something interesting. Yeah. And that's also a good place to put some tests. I will not write tests to make sure that Nginx is working. Uh,
0: me neither. I one thing though one thing that's fascinating and interesting I think this isn't as needed now as it was before but for a couple of years or maybe 5 to 10 years Django the web framework it changed quite a lot so they removed parts that weren't really a good idea anymore and they added parts that were a good idea and they changed the semantics of stuff and so on so I would have had a very good use for some tests that checked my assumptions of Django. <laughs> because then when I upgraded, which I, I usually, for that project, I upgrade once a year. And then I uh, fixed the bugs for like three months or something. It isn't a very well-used project. So it takes some time to get people to visit all the places <laughs> of it. <laughs> but then I, I spent some months... Um, very few hours per month, to fix all the small bugs. But if I had tests that said, I make this assumption about this function, then I would have seen all of that after upgrading and running the test suite once.
1: But I also wonder how... Isn't it just as tricky to figure out all the places where you have assumptions about your web framework?
0: Yep, that's true. And... uh, Nowadays Django is very stable, so it's it has become boring technology like Postgres. Postgres is quite exciting. Yeah, I think Elixir is
1: actually aspiring to be to be boring in that way too uh, as a language. So I think
0: huh. has it reached boring yet?
1: I think uh, if it was 1.9 or 1.10 that Jose announced that the language was essentially done
0: nice I love software that's done
1: yeah and like they've they've updated since uh, they they keep releasing versions but the new versions generally contain nice improvements so we've had improvements to how elixir and Erlang can share sort of documentation fragments um, and Ooh. some Sort of convenience functions, the daytime support has become better in the standard library, that sort of thing. And
0: yeah, the. Nice. Lots of quality of life, not that much, uh, pretty new type system or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. I generally don't have to poke much out of my code to, to go from one version to the next. It's very, very not a uh, Python 2 to Python 3 migration. But that one was absurd.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, we 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 censored uh, the product rather than updating.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's. I think they had a good reason for it, but it was so long time ago that I don't remember.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it was mostly about Unicode being very very broken, and they wanted to do a sync IO. Yes. And most people, like a lot of the people that were using Python two. Didn't necessarily feel feel that pro, those problems enough to to move. I think
0: I felt the Unicode problem.
1: Yeah, i, I definitely felt the Unicode problem, especially in two point six series. But yeah, it's it's very dangerous to to sort of take a heavy break on backwards compatibility.
0: Yeah. So either you have, I think this is. My idea around it is that either it has to be done all the time. Like, it's a say, we have a I think
1: Elm does that. I think cool. between 0.19 and 0.19.1, you will have breaking changes. <laughs> but that's Elm. I don't think it's semantic versioning. <laughs> I think it's something else. But I, I could be wrong. Uh, it could be just this project might have some challenges with it. But...
0: And yeah, but but one of the cool things with Elm is run the type checker, compile everything. If it compiles, it works. If it doesn't compile, it will tell you in a very nice voice yeah. where it doesn't work. Uh, same for Haskell. It uh, breaks all the time. Doesn't really matter because run uh, <laughs> compile it. If it compiles, it works. If it doesn't compile, I change a few things and yeah. Uh, so that's that's kind of cool, and that's one way to do it. And the other way is to almost never do one of the, these huge changes. Just add stuff. And
1: I, I think that's like one of the big challenges in software is that it does sort of uh, rot a little bit, yep. um, where where having a stable routine around updating the OS and updating dependency packages and updating libraries and updating frameworks and updating languages, like that's a very, that's usually a fairly intricate and demanding process. So, you know, and it's never, never a business priority. Uh, No. (laughs) I mean, it should be probably, but, but it isn't.
0: It's one of those business priorities that's accumulating, and it has a threshold. So, <laughs> it's not a business priority until it is, and then it's panic for a while, and then it's not a business priority, and so on.
1: And can testing help you with that? Mm, not sure. I think <laughs> so. Actually, that that's an interesting part. Like you can have like almost perfect test coverage of your application. And yep. the next time you're going to deploy it, a package has moved onto your feed and it's broken. Yes.
0: And that's why you want the assumption tests. Or uh,
1: or reproducible builds. Like There are so many yeah. ways in which people are trying to make software uh, sort of absolutely reliable and i don't know that a lot of them are are fully utilized in in industry because they are almost too uh to a t uh, super inconvenient (laughs) yep and like pick your pick your battles i think so if you want So I would love to sort of freeze dry my NPM packages in many cases, because I feel like NPM moves a lot under your feet. I have had almost zero problems with Hex, so Elixir packages moving under my feet. They've been very reliable. I don't find that I need to update them super often. Uh, And then we have things like the OS and that's, that's a trickier one. I've definitely had some painful sort of Ubuntu or Debian major version updates. yeah, and then there that's a case where I think something like mix might be might be a good thing.
0: On the other hand, running Arch is almost painless nowadays. we I know we talked about how painful it was ten years ago, or maybe nine, uh, when they switched to system D. But since other then,
1: people have told me differently,
0: oh, they're just using arch in a way that's painful. <laughs> they should use arch like I do. Oh, <laughs> that's the secret. Yeah, maybe I could start selling use arch like like I do courses. I could get rich. Yeah, yeah,
1: and popular and
0: and yeah, and if people everyone
1: loves hearing uh, that I use arch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: could start selling t-shirts the
1: vegans of linux yeah and i say that as a vegan using linux
0: yeah there are are hmm and if if uh, arch is too easy and like that you can use nixos instead Um, yeah there you get deterministic installs of the os and that's kind of cool
1: yeah like i actually think nix seems sort of compelling We should probably talk about putting things into production at some point.
0: Yeah.